one to another into one stick that they might become one in your hand. When the sons of you people speak to you saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? And say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, I'll put them with it in the stick of Judah and make them one stick and they'll be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I'll gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. They'll no longer be two nations, no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them for all of their dwelling places in which they've sinned. And I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Verse 24, this is the second half. There are two particular portions, 15 through 23, the promise of unity, and then the promise of the unity from 24 to 28 will be unity in the Davidic king, which is obviously Christ. My servant David will be king over them. They will all have one shepherd. They will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Then they will live in the land which I gave to Jacob, my servant, which your fathers lived. They will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Praise God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, that you are God, and beside you there is no other. You are infinitely and perfectly holy and just and good and merciful and loving, and your word is utterly true. You make wonderful promises to us as your people here tonight. Someday all of the horrible divisions that so mar not only the world, but even the church, someday we'll all be perfectly one, as you call us to be perfectly one, Jesus Christ, in your great high priestly prayer. And we're going to reside in an everlastingly perfect estate where we truly will be brothers and sisters dwelling together in perfect unity under our glorious shepherd head, even you, Christ. Help me preach these things. Help us believe them. Encourage your saints. We need it. In Christ's name. You remember, if you were with us last time that I preached a few weeks ago, that the first part of this chapter is the dry bones passage, the the vision of the valley of dry bones in verses 1 through 14. And that consisted of a promise, even as this consists of a couple of promises. That section is God's promise to take his people, who he says are spiritually dead, and he promises to make them alive. And you remember what God was referencing back back there in verses 1 through 14. He was referencing his people, both Israel, and they're in Assyrian captivity, and Judah, and they're in Babylonian captivity. And he likens their estate of slavery to being in a state of death. He says they are a valley of dry bones. And in that promise, he promised not only to vivify them, fancy word, to make them alive, give them spiritual life. 
he promises to re- take them out of slavery and bring them into the land of milk and honey, the promised land. So two things. I'm going to free you, and I'm going to free you for a purpose. I'm going to bring you into the promised land. The promised land is typological. It's a type of Eden, which Eden is a type of heaven. Read chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. I promise I'm going to free you from bondage to the devil and free you and place you in this land. I'm going to have my promised people in my promised land, and we're going to dwell together in perfect uh, friendship and in harmony. That's what God promises to do for his people in that previous section. And all of those things, those promises I just mentioned, are meant to excite God's people to look forward to the culmination of those promises, which I referenced in Hebrews 11, when God says, I'm going to free you from bondage, I'm going to bring you into the land flowing with milk and honey, it will be like Eden. Heaven is going to be like Eden. I want to read the, 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 the fruition of that promise, which will be when all of God's people are in heaven, which is the perfect promised land, it, it will be like a renewed Eden. And it will be better than he, Eden because Eden was perfect but mutable meaning we could defect. Adam and Eve defected, and so we fell. When we're in the glorious heavenly promised land, the better than Eden estate, it will be immutably perfect. We won't be able to defect. No sin will be allowed there. And so when you look at heaven in the Bible, the eternal estate, it's oftentimes depicted with Eden-like language. And I'm going to read that for us from the book of Revelation 22, verse 1. He showed me a river of the water of life, their Eden language, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in our passage, it talks about the sanctuary, the throne of God being everlastingly with his people. This is the the, the fulfillment of that. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life. There's that Eden language, bearing 12 kinds of fruit. It's symbolical, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. This particular promise that we're looking at is a promise of unity. That's what we're going to be looking at as well, that God promises to take away all sources of divisions and bring unity. It was for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of the, the God and the Lamb will be in it. His bond servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no longer any night. They'll not have any need of light or lamp because God the Lord will illumine them and there will be rain forever and ever. In God's promise in heaven, God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. We have that, we have that uh, restated twice in our section that we read in Ezekiel. God says, this is what it's going to be like when these promises are fulfilled. I will be your God and you'll be my people. And we're going to dwell together, which is implicit in the promise, in perfect friendship, which is like Eden. That was the previous promise. And God reiterates that, though with some different language here uh, tonight in our section. So we go from God's promise to bring life out of death. And what we're looking at in 15 and following, God promises to bring friendship out of enmity. And in the case that we're looking at, it's dealing with specifically Israel and Judah as two separate people. But ultimately, it's going to encompass the nations. God will take warring peoples And in this Davidic king, Jesus, he will make us harmoniously one. That's ultimately the the promises that are being um, proffered here in our our passage. And I would argue, perhaps it's an argument from the greater, I'm going to make dead people alive, 
to the lesser. I'm going to make warring brothers to be at friends in peace with one another. And perhaps as we walk through it, it won't look like a greater to a lesser argument. Perhaps it will look equally um, miraculous for God to, to do this. And ultimately, as we say, when we come to that 24 section, verse 24, God will bring about this blessed unity and perfect friendship through the Messianic King, Jesus Christ. God will take these two warring brothers, Israel and Judah, nations, and make them one uh, in Christ. But let's, let's see. For, for us to realize what God is getting at, that God will bring together Israel and Judah, we need to at least understand what occurred to bring about the separation of Israel and Judah. If you know your Bible, you'll know when it occurred around about the time of King Solomon, or Solomon's son, uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam with Jeroboam. But let me read some of that for us to see why the separation occurred. This is 1 Kings uh, chapter 11, verse 29. It came about at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Now Ahijah took hold of the new cloak, which was on him. He tore it into twelve pieces. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel. Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me, that's important, because they have forsaken me and they have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, observing my statutes, my ordinances, as his father David did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. But I'll take the kingdom from his son's hand, and I'll give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I'll give one tribe. My servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. I'll take you, and you shall reign on whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. So that's the separation. Judah was living idolatrously like a pagan Gentile. And God says, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from, uh, from David essentially, and give it to this fellow uh, Jeroboam. He stands for Israel. He's going to get ten tribes. Actually, um, Judah will get two, uh, one and one half tribe. And I want to summarize what uh, has occurred. Um, One of Solomon's sons, uh, Rehoboam, I think it was Rehoboam, after the dad died, he went to his counselors regarding uh, his people. His people had come to him and said, listen, will you lower the taxers for us? Your father laid on us a tax burden. And so Rehoboam went to his counselors. He went to the older counselors and said, what should I do? They said, well, speak sweetly to the people. Essentially, grant them their request, and they're going to love you forever. And then he went to his younger counselors and said, what should I do? And they said, speak harshly to the people. Essentially, d- deny their request. And from that uh, resulted the split. And the ten tribes went to Israel, and the one and uh, two tribes went to Judah and that was the split. And we are at really round about 975 uh, when that split occurs after Solomon. And we're here in our passage around uh, about 580. So roughly for 400 years of redemptive history, Israel and Judah have been warring at, with one another. 
And if you study the history of Israel and Judah after the split, they oftentimes, each of them, ally with Gentiles, and they try to destroy one another. What does the Bible say about uh, a household divided can't stand? This is brothers who have the same family. And I I referenced in my prayer, I think, uh, it's good and pleasant for brothers to dwell together in peace and unity, and we're going to do that in heaven. But it's horrible when you see brothers warring with one another. That's this. For 400 years, the Israelites have been trying to kill those of Judah. Same God, same family, and they should be loving one another and serving one another in the Lord. Instead, they're trying to annihilate one another. And God comes along after 400 years of fratricide, brothers killing brothers. And he says, I'm going to do an end, bring an end to all of it. Brother will love brother, and they're going to love them perfectly and be perfectly united under one perfect shepherd. It can only be done in Christ Jesus. But that's the promise. That's the promise that God will bring an end to this war. And of course, they're, they're, right now at this time, they're in respective captivities. Israel is in Assyria captivity. Assyrian and Judah is in Babylonian captivity for their sin. And God says, when I bring them back and when I unite them, he's going to eradicate all their lawlessness. They're not going to be idolatrous anymore. They're only going to love the Lord. They're going to obey the law of God. I've said many, many times, in the eternal estate, we're going to obey the moral law. The moral law is perpetual like God. And we're going to obey the Ten Commandments perfectly when we're in heaven. And what's the summary of the Ten Commandments? To love God perfectly and to love human beings perfectly. We're, we, we are going to do that in the eternal estate when we're all one people under one shepherd. That's the promise. That's the promise. So I mentioned Spurgeon said we should be the happiest people on the planet, Christians. And it's sad that we aren't. Um, someday we will be living in perfect unity with all the people uh, under one perfect Christ head. That's, that's what's going on. Now, the kind of sermon that God calls Ezekiel to um, preach, we've seen him do this before. He enacts his sermon. Enacts. It's an acted out sermon. And he's told to take two sticks, and the, the sticks themselves are a symbolical sermon. We've seen God tell Ezekiel to do this throughout the whole book. I think the first time he's told to act out his sermon. Now, I've maybe mocked this a few times. I shouldn't mock in preaching. It's being, um, being, um, oh, what is it? What is the word? I'm having a mental freeze. Um, Oh, it'll, it'll come to me. But I should be careful in mocking or belittling anything, lest I appear to be derisive of other Christians. Sometimes I do, I have mocked when people do pantomime sermons. I've been in them, and the guy's doing this. I realize there are sermons in the Old Testament where God tells his Old Testament prophets to act out sermons. But the people of God in the Old Testament were living under the old epoch. And the Bible calls that the state of infancy. Read the book of uh, uh, Galatians chapter 4. In previous times, he spoke to his people like this, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. So he speaks in childlike language because the church exists in its infancy. So he's using childish language because they're in their childish estate. And the New Testament church, we're no longer in the time of infancy. We're in the time of maturity. So he no longer speaks like that to his people. He speaks more in his word. But we, we are in that particular time. So that's why God is still speaking in this particular 
way, just in case you go to a church and they're doing some of this. Um, I know my daughter had gone to a church where the guy was trying to teach that God breaks through barriers or something, and he puts out fires. And the minister got up dressed like a fireman with a car door, and he broke the car door window with a sledgehammer. Wouldn't it just be better to say that? You, I, mean, I, I digress. But So he's preaching with these symbolical sermons. We've seen it in Ezekiel chapter 3 was the beginning of it. He's told to go into the house, tell everybody, I'm going in the house, I'm going to tie myself up. And it was acting out. You remember Ezekiel chapter 4 is very, very, very vivid. Ezekiel is told to build a model clay siege work of Jerusalem, like a child's toy. And the people are going to go, what's going on, Ezekiel? And then Ezekiel says, this is what's going on. I'm the watchman on the wall, and Babylon is coming for you because you've sinned, essentially repent. And you remember uh, Isaiah is told to preach for two years naked. I think Micah is also another prophet that was told to preach for a time naked without any clothes. And you think, why would God do that? Well, if you've seen Schindler's List, I've said this before, that there was a scene where they're marching around naked. It was one way that the enemies of God's people would humiliate God's people. And this occurred in the Old Testament. When they, the, the conquerors wanted to humiliate the people, they stripped them naked and they went off into captivity. So Ezekiel and the other prophets, they act out these sermons, many of them surrounding captivity. They dig a, wall, a, a hole through their wall. They put all their belongings on a sack and carry it through. They go around naked. And the people would say, what are you doing? And God's man then would say, now I'm going to explain what these symbols mean. You are going into captivity naked just like me you're only going to carry your gear on your back like me like me for your sins and so he's preaching this symbolical sermon with these two sticks now when you say not only is he speaking in kind of childish figures because they're in the state of infancy why does he use the figures of sticks or branches in reference to israel I've said my whole life as a, being raised a Roman Catholic, and I never knew it was from the, the Gospel of John, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's John chapter 1. That's John the Baptist looking at Jesus Christ. I never knew that. I never knew it was in the Bible. But someone with a Bible, like you all, raised in a Protestant church, and you know the Bible, if you heard, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you would go, oh, that's John chapter 1. When Ezekiel comes out and says, here are some branches, and I'm going to write... Israel on one, or Ephraim for Israel on one, and Judah for Judah on the other. This is common language for Israel. When you hear the, behold the Passover lamb, that's Ezekiel, that's Exodus chapter 12. Every Jew knew that that's Exodus chapter 12. And remember from Numbers chapter 17, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel, get for them a rod for each of the father's household, 12 rods, that this is not a, this is not an uncommon thing where God will take a stick or a rod. Wasn't there a rod even in the Ark of the Covenant that budded, an almond rod? So Israel has been taught to understand, to see themselves with these symbolical figures. So it's language that the stick language is for Israel. It's, it's not uncommon. Now, when he writes on these two names, Ephraim is put for Israel because the split occurs with the fellow Jeroboam 
And then Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Jeroboam was an Ephraimite. Um, and Ephraim was, oh, Ephraim, Ephraim. Ephraim was, the, I believe he was the second son. I don't think he was the first son to, to Joseph. So Joseph has two sons born in Egyptian captivity. Is it Manasseh? Manasseh and Ephraim? Yeah, yeah. Manasseh and Ephraim. And they're born to his Egyptian wife. And the Egyptian wife is the daughter of the Egyptian pagan priest, On, that gets given to Joseph. And Joseph names the second boy, Ephraim. Let me read that. Genesis 41. Now, before of the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph from Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. She's daughter of a pagan priest. Uh, bore to Joseph. Joseph named the firstborn, right, Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all of my trouble in my father's household. He named the second boy, Ephraim. For he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So this, this man, Jeroboam, stands for Israel because he's an Ephraimite. And obviously Judah stands for Judah. I don't want to make too much of this. Not only is the language... Um, customary for Israel to be referred to as some rod or, or stick uh, in its infant language for an infant uh, epoch but it also is meant I think to engender humility uh, in the people of God much like telling the people of God you're a valley of dry bones I mentioned this this morning I don't know why this is I, I forget which Puritan I had read that said something like this that, that pride is like a seven headed hydra I, I think it's the last sin that will be extinguished in us in our walk with Jesus Christ. Um, I know people think, well, this kind of sin, immorality, is the most tenacious sin. Lying is a tenacious sin, and they are tenacious sins. I think pride is the most tenacious sin. Um, beggars can be proud. I mean, we, 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 we and, and much, of, much of the warring between Israel and Judah came from each one trying to take the preeminence or the ascendancy in the kingdom. And God says, essentially, you're just two sticks. He tells Ezekiel, pick up two sticks from the ground. And he says, Israel, you're a stick. Judah, you're a stick. You're just a stick. I know we are impressed by people and we should hold people in high regard. The Bible does say, but when we consider who and what people are apart from God and Christ what are we really what are we what is this what is the most clever person in the world what is the strongest person the most wealthy person in the world what are they really they're animated dust they're animated dust the strongest cleverest wisest person is animated dust and when God calls for the spirit they return to dust God says you're a stick this is meant to not only cause the people to reflect on the division, but to humble themselves. Pride is the source of many divisions, uh, Israel against Judah. But think of the church. church. Church is split all over the place. And for what reason? I know people, oh, I'm for the purity of the church and the honor of Jesus. Really? Is that, is that the source of most church fights? Is it most church? Family splits. Church splits. Rides in there somewhere. And God says, you're a stick. And this isn't the first time. He says to Amos this, I have overthrown some of you when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were like a burning stick plucked out of the fire. Yet you haven't returned to me, says the Lord. 
God uses lowly figures like this to speak to his sinful people because he wants us to humble ourselves. He wants us to humble ourselves. What does Jesus say? If you exalt yourself, God will humble you. If you humble yourself, in due time, God will exalt you. We are sinners saved by grace. We're loved by God. I, I just, the, the longer I live, I don't, I don't know. The longer I live, I'm more convinced I don't know how much God loves, like the extent that he loves us. We, we cannot sin away the love of God. But when, so we're sons, we're daughters, every privilege in Christ is yes and amen. I said that this morning. So we're high, 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 attached to God in Christ. But apart from God in Christ, what are we? We were conceived in our mother's womb in sin. We come out of our mother's womb and we live in sin. Our best deeds are filthy rags. And so God says, I want you to humble yourself. And then he, he speaks in these figures. And, and not only is all of this language meant to teach us and to humble us, when God says, this is who you are, this is what you are, you're a valley of dry bones, you're two sticks that I'm going to make alive in one. If you take two sticks, dead sticks that you pick up off the ground, and you duct tape them together, two dead sticks, are they going to live? Is this going to be, a, is this going to be an almond branch that's stuck in the ark that, that blossoms? Not ordinarily. Do old women beyond their childbearing years have babies? No, they don't. But Elizabeth did. Do young women who have never known a man have a baby? Yes, but one did, the Virgin Mary. Do dead bones live? They do if God says to live. Do two dead sticks put placed together become one and live? If God promises they will, they will. This is meant to do what the previous section is meant to do, drive us to God. That's why I said what I said this morning, sanctified sickness is better than unsanctified health. Anything that will drive us to God is a good thing. This is meant to drive us away from our current condition. They're in captivity. They're in captivity. And God says, I'm going to make you one, and I'm going to make you one under this new king. If you're in captivity, we mentioned the paralytic this morning was a paralytic for eight years. If you're in captivity for, for, um, for, for Israel, they're going to be in captivity since 722. For uh, Judah, they're going to be in captivity 70 years. Are you thinking this is a likely thing to happen? No. No. I prayed it this morning, or I referenced it this morning, from Mark chapter 9. God, Jesus says to the, to the poor man whose son is just broken. He says, essentially, I'm going to heal your son. And the guy doesn't believe him. And he says to Jesus, what? Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. That's all of us as Christians. We believe the Bible. Everybody hears it. Bible-believing Christian, but how much do we believe, 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 believe? This is meant to, to, to cause us to believe, believe, believe. God says, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to drive you off of yourself, off your own reasoning, and back to me. Do you believe the promises of God? Do you believe the promises of God? I'm going to make this happen. Now, there, there are some things about this particular division that you think, is this really going to happen? Some of the difficulties that make this almost seem impossible to the flesh. Have you ever been? Um, have you ever been party to a family fight, like a fam, like a family feud? Um, 
like brothers and sisters squawking with brothers and grown ones, I mean. And usually you fight over, I don't know, your brother got the Hummel or your, your brother, your sister got the old car when your mom died or something. There's some fight. Is it easy to reconcile warring brothers and sisters? Oh, <laughs> the Bible says it's way easier to reconcile the Hatfields and the McCoys than a brother who is offended against another brother. And I didn't make this up. God the Holy Spirit says this. A brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city. And contentions in the family are like bars of a citadel. I have people I love very, very much that got in a squawk many years ago, and that squawk stuck. (laughs) And the only thing that's going to unstick that squawk is what? It's not a what. It's a who. It's Christ. It's the Davidic king. Well, you think there is no way this family is ever going to be reconciled. Apart from Christ, there's no reconciliation. There's no way it's going to occur. But in Christ, he takes away their enmity with God and God's enmity with them, and he makes them one. This is shades of of Ephesians 2, 11 through 21. And I referenced it. Not only does it look almost impossible, they're offended brothers. Um, The Bible says, as I referenced earlier, a kingdom divided, a house divided will not stand. And this is one of the things, I, I, I like denominations because it allows us to be intellectually honest with what we believe the Bible teaches, So if you believe in the continuation of gifts and you're a Pentecostal, say it loud and say it proud. I don't, so it allows me to be a Presbyterian. I say it loud and say it proud. And good on you. As long as we love one another in the Lord and we are allowed to work in the way that we understand things biblically, so you're not coercing a person's Christian liberty, which I think is wrong, I'm for it. But where I'm not for denominations is when we become sectarian when we say, I'm better than you, I don't love you because you do this, and it's not a gospel issue, that would be wrong. The church can't stand. The church is not effective. Families are not effective. They can't stand when there is, there, there, there's heart division. Um, and God says, I'm going to take away all of these divisions. I'm going to unite Israel and Judah. 400 years they've been trying to kill one another. Never going to happen. Yes, it will. And he says, I'm going to tell you when it happens. I'm going to bring the Christ in. And I'm going to take you from all of the nations. And in this particular promise is included the conversion of the Gentiles. And this is, a, this is a, an Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12, 11 through 21. I'm going to save from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. All of these various peoples. My wife and I had worship this afternoon from Revelation chapter 14. Same language. I'm going to take people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, I'm going to make them one in this Davidic king, in this Christ. This clearly is the promise of the coming Christ. Look around. Look around. Do you, does it look like you could affect peace with warring tribes, with warring peoples? We've talked about it, probably, I mentioned it probably ad nauseum. A person who is a die-hard Democrat versus a person who is a die-hard Republican, whatever that really means, good luck getting them to love one another, like love, love one another. And forget about all the other ways that we fight and war and hate. God says, I'm going to pluck from all of these nations and I'm going to join them together in this one stick and make them one people 
brothers and sisters that really love one another under one Christ. Beloved, can he do it? Can Jesus Christ do it? I know in this room, we have experienced that like this much. We've experienced it imperfectly. I know we have. You can go to another country. You you meet another brother or sister in Jesus, and you feel like you're their brother or sister in Jesus. They may look different than you, sound different than you, have a different background than you, but because they're found in the same common Lord, you love them and treat them like a brother and sister. I understand imperfectly. I understand our flesh gets in, but we experience it in part. We're going to experience it in the zenith, And what's included in this particular promise is what's referenced in Romans chapter 11. And there's lots of debate. It's when all Israel shall be saved. You know that language? When all Israel shall be saved. What that means. It's debated. But this isn't debated. God says there's going to come a day, and he says it clearly, when I'm going to take these physical Jews and I'm going to join them to Jesus as their Messiah. They will be believers. Whether Calvin's view is correct, that he's going to take physical Jews and incrementally over the years, they're going to become part of spiritual Israel, like all of the early church, all of the apostles were Jews, all of the early disciples were Jews. Whether that's the fulfillment or whether there's going to be something kind of cataclysmic before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that, that God will take physical Jews and make them spiritual Jews in Christ Jesus. This is the end of uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. A real Jew is not one who is just externally circumcised, but he's one internally, that he loves the Lord Jesus. God says, I'm going to work this mighty miracle, and they're all going to be one. Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, free, slave, all one under this one Christ. And then at the, at the, 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 the summary of these promised blessings is I've referenced it earlier They're no longer going to be idolatrous. Not only are we a proudful people, I think think it was Calvin that said human beings are an idol-making factory. We make idols out of everything. We make idols out of our... uh, I had a a young man said, he he was newly married. He said, I love my wife so much, I'm worried. I said, what are you worried about? He goes, I think I love her like an idol. I'm idolatrous in my love for her. We're idolatrous with our spouses. We can be idolatrous with our kiddos. We can be idolatrous with our money, with our titles, with our health, with everything. And these people were idolatrous, idolatrous. They were worshiping false gods. God says in Christ and finally in the eternal estate, no more idolatry. No more law breaking. There will only be law keeping. No more hatred. No more division. Only love only holiness and God says I will be your God and you will be my people that's how the Bible ends he's going to wipe away every tear no more sin remember I think it was it was George Whitfield that said when we die and go to heaven we're going to be in a place where there's no more sin and I can't essentially I can't wait I can't wait to be in a place where there's no more sin especially my sin where we can obey freely I did something that I thought the Holy Spirit wanted me to do the other day, and I was praying, and I, I, I did it. Even in my doing it, I, I felt my flesh. I knew there was part of my flesh in there. And I'm like, 
I wanted to do this loving thing and I tried to do this loving thing. Even in doing the loving thing, I was aware enough to say, wow, I had some selfishness in that. We're going to be in a place where we're going to love God and man, all people, perfectly under one Christ. That's the promise. That's the promise. I didn't mean to depress anybody this morning by saying Christ isn't the reason for the season. Christ is the reason for everything. Christ is the reason for everything. We live for Christ. We die for Christ. Christ gives our life meaning. And we're called to, to love people, to love Christians, to love God because we're in this one Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word. Our final hymn tonight, I think, is a fitting hymn.